On October 27th, Louisville United Methodist Church held an all-church gathering for those interested to hear from Reverend Elizabeth Jackson about where the United Methodist Church was and how we got here. Following the presentation came a Q&A session. This is a recording of that meeting. Uh, so my hope today is to cover about 200 years worth of history. And, um, and, uh, and to, to give, because I think it's really important to have an idea of where we are and where we're going. I think we need to know where we've been. Um, and so... And so I do have a lot of material, but I really want you to ask questions as we go. And I might have some answers and I might not. Um, the history geek in my family around Methodism is not me. Um, and so somebody else prepared these notes. So I was like, seriously, you're on your third page. You need to stop. And she was like, I just think it's important. Um, but I think what, what I, um, the reason why we went back as far as we did is because when churches hear the word schism, um, it can be really nerve-wracking, but it's important to recognize that the Methodist Church actually has a history of schism. Um, and so it is not something new to this body, and it may feel new to you, but one of the beautiful things I've learned as I've studied churches, especially local churches, but it, it carries out in, in larger and smaller organisms, is the way DNA works. And the DNA that plants a church will continue to present itself in different ways, even hundreds of years later. Um, and it's in knowing that DNA that people can respond in the most healthy manner. Um, so yeah. So in 1844, um, the Methodist church split for the first time in the North and the South over slavery. And so we saw an establishment of the Methodist Episcopal Church and then the Methodist Episcopal Church South. In 1939, so we're looking at 56, 86, 63 years later, uh, so there were two Methodist churches over the split of slavery. And 63 years later, the Methodist Episcopal Church South, the Methodist Episcopal Church, and the Methodist Protestant Church joined together for the creation of the Methodist Church. And that's the first time we really see that. But also at that time was the creation of what we called the Central Conference. And the Central Conference was not a, juris, uh, was not a, a space determined by geography. It was a place determined by your racial background. So the central jurisdiction was for the African-American churches. And so we united and then actively segregated within our organization. Uh, in 1900 is when women got full laity rights as members of the church. And it wasn't until 1956 that full clergy rights were given to women. Uh, Maud Kaiser Jensen was the first woman ordained. And during that time, there was legislation at that general conference that was adopted to allow churches in the African-American central jurisdiction to transfer out of that jurisdiction and into ones that were regionally appropriate based on geography. But it had to be something that was instigated by the churches. In 1968, in Dallas, Texas, there was another uniting conference. And this is when um, you see a lot of this impact actually in the in what's now the Mountain Sky area. You see it a lot in Wyoming and Colorado, where the Methodist Church and the United uh, Brethren Church joined together, become the United Methodist Church. 
Um, I remember I was probably about nine years old, and I was always told that I'd been a Methodist since I was a baby, and my parents were married in the Methodist church, and the church I was baptized in was the church my grandparents were married in. And I'm flipping through the hymnal, and I see that 1968, which is after my father's birth, that that's when we became the United Methodist Church, and I felt offended that I didn't know we hadn't always been United Methodists. <laughs> I felt I'd been fed a lie. We haven't always been this. Um, and and when, with the United Methodist Church being formed in 1968 in Dallas, Texas, they eliminated the Central Conference. So we've now reached some semblance of integration in 1968 as the Methodist Church. In 1972 in Atlanta, Georgia, and almost all of these occur at what we call the General Conference. So when we, um, on November 23rd, I think, we are going to have an all-church conference, and everybody that is a member is invited to attend and vote. Um, and it is our, our legal voting body that will gather on that day. And we do this on a re the annual conference um, is our, our conference of um, the mountain sky. So Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, and two churches in Idaho. We gather on an annual basis once a year as a legal voting body. And that includes laity and clergy, both being there. Then we have what's called a jurisdiction, which is a larger area, which gathers together those conferences. We do a jurisdictional gathering uh, every four years. And then we do a general conference, which is also an every four-year thing. And so the majority of these decisions are being made at those general conferences. In 1972, there was a committee formed, because what else do Methodists do well other than potlucks, but committees? <laughs> um, and this studying committee was meant to study human sexuality and the United States culture and scripture and better understand what could come out of that. So at the 1972 general conference, what you can do is you can you can present legislation that people study and edit and then vote on. So in Atlanta, Georgia, the first full general conference of the United Methodist Church, so four years after the, the merger, legislative committee introduces the following language. Homosexuals are no less than heterosexuals, are persons of, as persons of sacred worth who need the ministry and guidance of the church in their struggles for human fulfillment. Further, we insist that all persons are entitled to have their human and civil rights ensured. That was the legislation brought forward and the work that the committee did. Who's familiar with Robert's Rules of Order? So what you can do is from the floor, using Robert's Rules of Order, is you can say, I'd like to make an amendment. And the amendment was made and then voted in. And, amend and I think my issue with Robert's Rules of Order is for people that um, speak a different language or are not familiar with Robert's Rules of Order or simply are people that need more time to process. You can make intense changes from the floor really quick and, and get people to vote without realizing the full extent of what they're voting on. So from the floor of General Conference, the language that I just read to you is altered to include, though we do not condone the practice of homosexuality and consider this practice incompatible with Christian teaching. Yes. So my personal commentary as we come into 2020 when people say stay and resist is we've been doing that for 40 some years. Uh, in, seven, in 1976, in Portland, Oregon, uh, the General Conference upholds the incompatibility language and instates funding restrictions on agencies that advocate homosexual rights. Uh, so added to the Book of Discipline is no board, agency, committee, commission, or council shall give United Methodist funds to any gay caucus or group or otherwise use such funds to promote the acceptance of homosexuality. 
1984, in Baltimore, Maryland, the General Conference upholds the incompatibility language and creates prohibition for ordination of LGBTQ persons. Um, So the language added was required to maintain the highest standards represented by the practice of fidelity in marriage and celibacy in singleness. Since the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching, self-avowed practicing homosexuals are not to be accepted as candidates, ordained as ministers, or appointed to serve in the United Methodist Church. At this time, an organization called Reconciling Ministry Network is created. Um, their goals are threefold. One, to identify local churches where we are welcome to participate in the full life of the congregation. Two, to provide a vehicle for ongoing education and ministries involving lesbians and gay men at the local level. And three, to empower local churches to advocate lesbian and gay concerns in their communities and to work as a network for such advocacy on the national level. Um, I would say it's been my experience of reconciling ministries that as we better understand transgenderism, they've expanded beyond the language in that initial value statement around gay and lesbian. Um, in 1988, in St. Uh, Louis, Missouri, General Conference upholds the language but softens it. Although we do not condone the practice of homosexuality and consider this practice incompatible with Christian teachings, we affirm that God's grace is available to all, and we commit ourselves to be in ministry for and with all persons. Um, for a second time, the General Conference commissions a study on homosexuality, um, like what instigated the 1972 language, and that study will pre be presented in 92. So four years pass. Uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, the General Conference upholds the language and rejects the study, which reported back after four years. The majority of the argument, or the majority of the report, argued for reversal of the social principle statement on homosexuality, and protests and actions against the choice of the General Conference begin during during the gathering of that body. Uh, in 1996, in Denver, Colorado. Uh, the General Conference upholds the incompatibility language and adds, to the, adds the prohibition of homosexual unions by United Methodist clergy and in United Methodist churches. So if, um, if uh, Janine Hill were to conduct a same-gendered ceremony in this building, um, the congregation and Janine would be liable for that violation of the Book of Discipline. Um, when, when a same-gendered ceremony takes place in a, in a United Methodist Church building, um, the clergy person and the congregation are liable for that violation of the Book of Discipline. Um, what we have not seen is a church brought up on charges, so we don't actually know how that would play, what, like, what the punitive action would be, but there would be th this body, if a clergy person did that, would be held accountable, um, which is why... Around 2005, um, three Methodist churches in Denver um, voted to open their buildings to same-gendered ceremonies um, so that the congregation was a part of that decision um, alongside their clergy persons, which created, in, it created some ruffled feathers in this conference. Oh, no, we have an open table. So... Um, so that's where we um, affirm God's grace in all. So we, open, we offer communion to anybody and everybody always. Um, and, and gotcha. Um, I apologize. I'm not repeating the questions for the recording. So the question is, uh, can gay United Methodist ministers give communion? Um, I... 
my existence in ordination is a violation. So it's not specified to different acts. It's legitimately the whole thing. Uh, in 1999, in Omaha, Nebraska, Reverend Jimmy Creech performed his second same-gendered wedding and is defrocked. Um, and this happened, like again, in Nebraska. And so there's a fair number of clergy persons in our conference um, and who have retired from our conference that have been impacted and affected by the way that was handled, um, which was hard and, and traumatic for a lot of people. Um, after the first wedding he conducted in 1997, he was brought up on charges, but argued that the social principles were merely instructive and therefore he was not breaking church law. He was acquitted under this logic. In 1999, he was tried and defrocked with the judicial council ruling that the social principles have effect under church law. Uh, in 2000 in Cleveland, Ohio, the general conference upholds language, protests break out and 185 people are arrested, including a bishop for quote, aggravated disorderly conduct. Um, Discussions of schism begin in 2000, and the language about homosexual weddings is moved from the social principles to the paragraph on ministry of the ordained. Um, so the social principles are guiding um, social engagement. So it comes out of the, the General Board of Church and Society, uh, which is the only religious building on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. And um, they include things... Uh, such as our understandings of addiction and our understandings of racism and our understandings around sexuality. Um, and we, the Book of Discipline then also holds our constitution and our rules. And so it was moved more distinctly from those guiding ideas um, to the, the legalistic aspects of the Book of Discipline. In 2004, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, General Conference upholds language and chargeable offenses are instated. Delegates added to paragraph 2702 um, disciplinary charges for the following. Being a self-avowed practicing homosexual, conducting ceremonies that celebrate homosexual unions, and performing same-sex weddings. Um, the vote is a plenary vote. It is 455 for and 445 again. So a gathering of 900 people, and the difference was 10 votes. In 2008, in Fort Worth, Texas, General Conference upholds incompatibility clause, and 250 advocates for full inclusion marched in silence and covered the altar with a black shroud in mourning. And then things pick up fast, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, in 2008 to 2012, across the U.S., Episcopalians, um, the ELCA Lutherans, and the Presbyterians opened their doors, their ordinations, and their marriage vows to all persons, regardless of sexual orientation. I would also go to say that the ELCA Lutherans and the Presbyterians did it at the cost of a schism. So those were two denominations that came out of larger denominations that split for the, the rights of full inclusion. In 2012 in Tampa, Florida, General Conference upholds language and protests ensue. Um, Plan UMC was legislation that was worked on by the body and voted for by the General Conference to move to restructure the United Methodist Church. Um, but after much work and attention, it was ruled unconstitutional by the Judicial Council after the event had closed. And if I remember correctly, it was a vote that passed in like the last 60 seconds of this 16-day gathering. Like it is just, it is rigorous work. General Conference um, is typically two weeks, so it's not 16 days, so I went the wrong direction. So it's 12 days. It's a Monday through a second Friday. Um, Meetings typically begin unofficially at 5 and 6 a.m. between um, conference delegates and jurisdictional bodies. And the formal proceedings usually begin about 8 a.m. They go until about 6, but they can go later. And then you have informal meetings afterwards and caucus groups and people meet during lunch. And um, 
And so Plan UMC was something that was not written beforehand. It was something that was written in those after hours meetings and hotel rooms and stuff like that. Um, the, the work to gather the votes from all sides of the position were discussed and motivated. And then because of technicalities in the language, um, it was ruled unconstitutional. And when general conference closes on that second Friday and the gavel falls, that's it for another four years. Unless we then jump into the story ahead to 1999 special called um, in 2013, in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, Reverend Frank Schaefer is defrocked for performing the wedding of his own gay son. This trial and action were publicized nationwide, bringing eyes to the issue, and a documentary was made about Schaefer in the subsequent years. Um, I've met him. It is, it is fascinating. We talked in like my fourth week here about civil disobedience, and it's, um, it is fascinating to look into the eyes of an individual that was forced to choose call our family. Um, so, and, and that is definitely when you start seeing uh, the Today Show and stuff like that, talking about the Methodist Church. Did you know before this, like in the 80s and 90s, the Methodist Church was the number one mentioned denomination in television and movies because we were the least conflict generating? <laughs> Wisconsin's also the most frequently named state. Um, I would say 2012's General Conference was the first one I started to watch. They tried to live stream that as much as possible. And um, I didn't know it was possible, but you can feel contention through a live stream when it gets hot, hot enough. Um, in 2016, Portland, Oregon, General Conference begins with multiple days of discussion about what rules the body will act under. Um, you have to vote the rules into place, and you can suspend the rules and change the rules if you're willing to commit to that before admitting to them, and which when you suspend the rules, it, it loosens that judicial council unconstitutionality aspect later on, because you're then playing by different rules, and it allows a little bit more flexibility. Um, a plan is brought to the connection by the connectional table, which again was a committee charged with, with exploring stuff and exploring ministry and faith and sexuality. To change the way legislative action is taken on the issue of human sexuality, after three days of discussion on the floor, the plan is rejected. Um, General conference is thrown into chaos with an accusation against a bishop for manip manipulating votes. And the conference comes to a halt and there is a request that the bishops lead. Um, I was there. I'm happy to answer questions about what that looked like. That is a very uh, tame synopsis of that. Um, a legislative action is taken in which we stop all discussion or action on legislation relating to human sexuality. And the bishops recommend, can you guess what they recommend? A committee. Um, and a study called the Commission on a Way Forward. In 2016, in Scottsdale, Arizona, the Western Jurisdiction Conference elects the first openly homosexual bishop in the United Methodist Church, Bishop Karen Alavito. She is appointed by the Jurisdictional Episcopal Committee to serve the Rocky Mountain and the Yellowstone Annual Conferences. In 2016 and 2018, across the globe, the Commission on the Way Forward meets for over two years, looking at various options. There are three plans that come out of their work. The traditional plan, the one church plan, and the connectional conferences plan take shape um, within the commission's time together. Early in the process, the traditional plan is rejected because it is not considered viable for the future of the United Methodist Church. The commission presents the one church plan as their best option for moving forward. The bishops require the commission to create a report of their time and include petitions that would create the traditional plan even though it was rejected by the commission. The, bishop of council, the council of bishops vote and support by a large majority the one church plan. But this vote is a, it's like a straw vote. It, it doesn't hold any weight. 
Um, in 2019, the special called session of the General Conference to deal with, the, with only issues related to human sexuality. After a day of prayer, legislative work begins on a very short timeline. I think they gathered four days or three, three or four days. Um, the traditional plan is passed, even though portions of it are unconstitutional and they were ruled unconstitutional before it came to the floor. Uh, financial plans are put in place to protect the pension funds for clergy and talks of schism consume the denomination. Um, the decisions made at general conference in 2019 uh, go into effect January 1. Um, and uh, some of the decisions, the traditional plan includes um, uh, punitive minimum um, punishments for violating the different human sexuality rules in the book of discipline. And um, include a grandfathering in of clergy who have conducted same-gendered weddings. And I'm sure there's other things, but if you ask the question, it might spark what other things come into place in 2020. Um, the gathering is in May um, in Minneapolis. Did you have a question, Wendy? Oh, okay, I saw your hand move. Um, well, yes. So I guess, what happens January 1st? Sure. Uh, so January 1st, the legislation that was voted on in February of 2019 goes into effect. So the traditional plan becomes the, the rule then um, on January 1, where the gathering in May, General Conference 2020 in Minneapolis, um, in, invites that new legislation. Um, so another gathering of 900 like-minded people from around the world to make some decisions about what happens with the Book of Discipline. Yes. In May. Um, so the question is, uh, is there legislation for a formal schism being brought forward in May? Um, there are thousands of pieces of legislation that are brought forward. Um, so uh, my children go to school in North Boulder County, and we lived in Denver. And um, the drive would take an hour plus, and we would, I would sit there every day in the passenger seat that I rode with Megan, because she was a delegate, and just read legislation to her for months in advance so that she knew all the pieces of legislation that were coming forward. So yes, there is legislation coming forward. Um, the culture in different places um, plays out in different ways. And the Episcopal leadership of the bishops in cultures with more hierarchical um, patterns to their culture um, have more influence. And, um, and the bishops of both the regions of the Philippines and the bishops for the continent of Africa have come forward and said they're pushing their delegates to not support any legislation that promotes schism. The United States delegates do not hold the majority vote when the body of the general conference gets together. So when we talk about the delegates for the Philippines and the 
the African nations, you're really close to, to the, the majority. Um, there are some delegates that come from Europe um, and some that come from South America, but at the end of the day, um, we're pretty much a, a church that is split across uh, the, South, the South Pacific region and, and the African continent and then the U.S. And so when you look at the U.S., after the traditional plan passed in February, a number of um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, conferences and local churches and clergy and lay people came out, and then we came into the annual conference season, and a lot of conferences and local churches came out and made statements of their willingness to uphold the traditional plan. And I would say of the U.S. delegates that were then voted to serve in the 2020 um, based on people's public, aspira- uh, public um, espousing of their theology and so forth, about 70% of the U.S. delegates um, do not support the traditional plan and would vote for some sort of healthy schism. But the, the, I would be remiss to say that there is any chance of that vote happening. Um, if it goes to general conference, there won't be a schism, in my opinion. Formal schism. Okay. So the question is, how will the implementation of the traditional plan impact us? Um, uh, there's a, I mean, it depends on really what statistic you look at, but there's between 8 and 12 million United Methodist members across the globe. And anyone who is a member of the United Methodist Church can press charges against any other member or clergy person. So, um, but uh, execution of how that plays out. So, there's a there's a few ways to answer that question. So, as of as of right now, I'm eligible for charges. Um, Joe Smith uh, down the street can decide. He wants to press charges, and he contacts RDS and the conference office and, and presses charges. Um, and what that plays out is there's a variety of things. If they press charges now, um, the, the current rules, the, the pre-traditional rules, say things like um, we can have um, a conversation, and we can figure that out without a trial. And then the, tri- the, the outcome, if it did go to trial, is not determined, um, but by the, the accuser, and there's no minimum punitive rules. It's uh, basically a trial by a jury of your peers. And one of the reasons why we're now seeing these punitive things put in place is because, gosh, I can see her face, but I can't think of her name. Uh, there was a minister in the Wisconsin conference who was charged with being a self-avowed and practicing homosexual. I don't know how she was found guilty, because things were different back then, but she was found guilty, and she was charged with one day without pay. Um, now, um, the accuser gets to be a part of the conversation to know what the outcome is. And if it goes to trial, um, I am required to be defrocked. Um, if it goes to trial. After January 1, if the charges come, and for whatever reason we don't figure something out in the... I can't think of the legal word when you kind of sit around a table and you figure things out. with Mediation, thank you. Um, if we don't figure something out in mediation and it goes to trial... The, the, the minimum punitive action has to be um, defrocked. And uh, it would be the Mountain Sky Conference. Um, and any of my colleagues 
who willingly knew and supported my ministry would be eligible to be brought up on charges as well. Yes, Sandy? Where does it leave the bishop? Um, very, very vulnerable, sir. Um, so to get into the more gray area aspect of your question, Abby, about where does that leave us? Um, some churches have decided um, that the credentials of the Methodist church are not relevant and have committed to employing their pastor with or without being defrocked. Um, and if there is a schism that does not take place at the general conference level, but takes place, I, I would like to think that I could be a part of whatever new denomination came about. Um, my personal anxiety is that um, the bodies that have the capacity to do that don't do it in 2020. And that we go through the process and the trauma of having the pastor be defrocked. And then um, for whatever reasons, the traditional plan has other things that prevents me from being employed by a Methodist church. And that two to three years from now, something new is birthed and somebody says, hey, do you want to come back to ministry? And by that point, really? So... How's your long-term planning look for 2020? <laughs> There's another. Does someone have to be a practicing member of a church? No. Be an accuser? No. Could like a disenfranchised former member? Like no, and suddenly we have a really good reason to keep clean membership roles, don't we? <laughs> yeah. You, do have you have to be a member. You don't have to be. That, that's your only requirement is to be a member of the Methodist church. So if any Methodist, any Methodist church, yes, 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 yes. So right now there is an active um, complaint process going to trial where a member of the Indiana conference has pressed charges against a clergy person in the state of Ohio. And there's no such thing as, um, what is it when you get charged with the same crime more than once? Double, double, there's no such thing as double jeopardy. So she's on her third round of charges and trial. Um, so she has stopped serving in a local church. She now serves in what's called extension ministry and is, is trying to figure out a way through it. But an, an individual who's not even a part of, not even in the same state, has pressed charges and they were unable to resolve things in mediation. So it is going to a trial at some point in the next few months. Yes, Latoya. Absolutely. repeat that for the recording. Um, 
so let me let me give you a little bit more backstory um, in the last three years um, since um, Bishop Karen's uh, appointment, and uh, see if that muddies the water more. Yeah. Uh, Right. So um, the question is, how how did the legalistic stuff fall out for Karen as well? Um, as I'm not just not a history nerd. I'm not really a polity nerd for Methodism either. Um, however, my wife continues to serve in roles that put me in positions where I'm present for these things. And um, I was at the jurisdictional conference that elected Bishop Karen. Um, it went 17 votes. <laughs> 17 votes with, um, I keep these bullet journals and I have a tally of the, I have the tally of the votes and how it went each time of, of Episcopal candidates um, discerning their place in the, in the votes and where they felt moving. And, um, and in, an incredible, um, an incredible female Hispanic minister in the desert Southwest um, basically offered uh, it was right up there. And I think this individual, I think, um, I think Dottie is going to be a, a bishop someday if there's a church. Um, and, and basically uh, offered a consension speech about um, different minority groups having a place at the table and that um there was a Tongan candidate that backed out and there is no Tongans on the council of bishops and, um, and how uh, Bishop Minerva Cacano, uh, who serves in the Northern California conference, the CalNev conference um, was the first Latin woman to serve. And that um, what an incredibly hard space for people who identify in these minority groups to be trading places so that there can be one seat at the table instead of zero seats at the table. Um, uh, but I talked about how at 2012, the general conference, you could feel the negative energy even through the live stream. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know that I can tell you um, what the Holy Spirit feels like for everybody else, but the Holy Spirit was active in that room. It was not a, a swift decision. It was not a political decision to elect um, Bishop Karen. It was, it was a spiritual one. And, and when you say 17 votes, you're not talking no, no, like they went through the rounds of putting names up and sitting and prayerfully over, over three days they voted um, to, to identify 17 times the body for the jurisdiction. Yes. So she was elected and um, immediately there was a charge that she was um, in violation and could not serve as a bishop. And my understanding of how that played out was um, the language of the book of discipline says we're not eligible for ordination. <laughs> But the, the consecration as a bishop is not actually language in the book of discipline that she is limited by. So because she was already ordained as a clergy person in good standing, she was eligible for the episcopacy. Um, at that same time, though, um, her wedding certificate was used as proof of self-avowed and practicing. And um, Gosh, I'm missing all the legal words. That has now become the standard. So my wedding certificate, my marriage certificate is um, proof that I am a self-avowed and practicing homosexual. It could be used as evidence against me if a trial should occur. Um, 
there was significant um, work done to move the one church plan forward. And I don't know how much of those were talked about. The one church plan essentially said that each individual church gets a chance to kind of vote how they're going to stand. Um, and I apologize if it's crass, but we'll just say inclusive or not inclusive. Um, and that that would then impact the clergy that could be sent to them and um, their willingness to engage the community around them. And uh, there was a fair amount of pushback uh, from people that are pro-inclusion that that was not enough. And yet um, I was fairly persuaded eventually that uh, a step in that direction would carve out a space um, for people of different positions. Additionally, um, post um, every general conference, there's a conversation about um, the delegates of Africa, which again, I want to point out is a whole continent of different cultures and countries and people and theologies. And, um, and the way they vote. And um, there's a fair amount of um, money in the Methodist church in the Southeast jurisdiction. And so um, there are stories and some have been confirmed and some have been um, denied, what? Debunked. Debunked. Um, but there is a distinct, um, but there is a conference in which the Southeast jurisdictions pay for as many African delegates as they can the days before the general conference in which they come and their flights are paid for and their housing is paid for and the Southeast jurisdictions present the legislation um, translated and, and their version to the delegates before they get to general conference. That is that we have proof of. Um, and so there is a, a narrative that I think is, um, is in that fun little gray zone of myth and truth that votes are bought, um, which is what instigated part of the problem at the 2016. What happened was um, a bishop um, leads the session from the, the front, and the bishop was accused of moving his finger in a certain way to tell certain people in the room to vote a certain way. And um, early Christianity <laughs> uh, sent people out to, to teach Christianity to other places, and we did it at the expense of lives and well-being, and we said, if you do religion our way, we're going to give you books, and if you do religion our way, we're going to give you food, and if you don't do religion our way, we're going to take your kids, and we're going to teach them this. And so um, we are reaping the, <laughs> the seeds of colonizing and racism. Um, and uh, there both is, I think, propaganda and influencing vote to delegates from other countries, and um, the other countries are lifting up a religion and a behavior and a way of being the majority that they have been taught by the European ancestors of Christianity. Um, so I think, so, so my understanding 
Um, after the 2016, the WCA, which is the Wesleyan Covenant Association, began to be formed. It is, has filed all the paperwork with the federal government to be a new denomination. Um, they have a board of trustees and they have leaders and they are actively recruiting churches and clergy uh, across the country to join and be in membership with the WCA, the, Western Coven uh, the Wesleyan Covenant Association. And um, they now are one of, um, there's also what's called the IRD and the Good News Movement. And these are the organizations that funnel that money from the Southeast jurisdiction um, to bring African delegates over and have these events. Um, and the, the material that was leaked from the gathering before the special conference, the special called general conference, was that um, the... The African delegates who are um, anti-homosexuality um, were basically told, if you vote for this plan, we will get the gays out of the church. This will remove them. Um, also, just so you know, our book of discipline and the ones for the African delegates are not the same. <laughs> we have what's like this like um, overarching book of discipline, and then we took the, the discriminatory name of a central conference um, that we had used for African-American churches in the 1800s, and we repurposed it um, to identify our international conferences. And central conferences, um, like the Philippines and the different ones within the African continent, um, get to um, adjust their book of discipline to be contextually relevant. But we don't have that in the U.S. We live by the larger one. We don't get to vote. And we don't get to vote on their contextually relevant on material. The general right. Are on the central conferences, book of discipline, we don't vote on that. Right. But they do vote on the book of discipline. Yes. Yes. And, and the, the other piece of um, not knowing what happens in 2020 with regard to the votes from, from places in which the bishops are leading towards not schisming is that um, when they then got to the 2019 special called conference, um, there was like five pieces of legislation and the body voted for how, what is the order we're going to deal with things because again, the gavel falls and business that's undone is undone. And um, these delegates that were wooed in the days ahead of time were told this is going to be our first priority. Our, our shared values are to get the gays out of the church. <laughs> and uh, the first piece of legislation that came up in February was clergy pension plans. And it violated the trust of the delegates from the African nations. So it will be really interesting um, to see where loyalties lie in that relationship. Um, so at 2019 annual conference um, for the Mountain Sky area, legislation came forward saying, um, we would like to form a committee. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so our regional, we want to form a committee to explore what it looks like to disaffiliate with the United Methodist Church. One more piece, though. Uh, just so you know, so the Western jurisdiction includes us. It includes Desert Southwest, which is Arizona, New Mexico. It includes CalPAC, which is Southern California and Hawaii. It includes CalNev, which is the top part of California and Nevada. And then um, you've got the Pacific Northwest, which is actually three different conferences that include the Pacific Northwest. Um, and Alaska, yep, yep, all the way up. Um, if, the, if the WCA could create a church that just eliminated us, they would be very happy. 
like just the Western jurisdiction. So um, we are the, the liberal left cousin in general. Um, and, and uniquely though, out of all of those regions that I named, our conference is probably the, the most diverse in theology. We are probably the furthest right of those left conferences. Um, but because we have the, the token gay bishop, um, people think we are going to be the ones that start the new church. Um, and so theoretically, um, the committee to form, um, the, to form an idea of what it would look like to disaffiliate is in process, but there is also one for the Pacific Northwest under uh, Bishop Elaine Stanofsky, who was our bishop before Karen. And then uh, my understanding is Cal Pack, I think, also has one going. And, and, um, and yet there is no momentum as a jurisdiction to move forward with this. Um, ideally, there was a request at each of those annual conferences by four of the six or at least four conferences in the Western jurisdiction at their annual conferences in June um, requested a special called jurisdictional meeting so that there could be some votes and movement on what it would mean to start a new denomination out of this region. And um, that was denied. I don't know who denied it. I know uh, rumor is that the bishops denied it, and there's also rumor that the delegates denied it. Um, but there is an informal gathering November 14th, 15th, and 16th in uh, just south of Los Angeles in the Long Beach area in which some of the delegates and some of the leaders on those committees are going to get together and see where the spirit is leading. Um, but it's my understanding that come January 1, if I am charged, um, the legal proceedings can be delayed and manipulated probably until about May. <laughs> and... Um, and then we will have exhausted our ability to do so, and the you have to do these things starts falling into place. Um, so if we don't have a plan for something new, I will most likely, in my opinion, be defrocked by August. Yes. Yes. Yes, I am guilty. There is no defense. There is there is no defense. If it goes to trial, I have no defense. Is there evidence that there are Hmm. So, right. So there's, um, I mean, this is where, um, this is where God really pushes us on the body of Christ. Right. So I have colleagues in the area who affiliate with the Western or with the Wesleyan covenant association, um, and have every intention of wanting to be part of, uh, a conservative movement of Methodism. And, and those individuals have said, we're not gonna, we're not gonna pick you guys off. Um, we have no intention of doing that. And, and we recognize that we can't be in a healthy relationship anymore, that we will be healthier divorced and we can do that well. Um, the challenge though is that, to the point earlier, it, it can take a, a disgruntled member of 
my home church who happens to be on Facebook or whatever. Uh, it doesn't have to be those, but no, there is not a movement um, in, in the people that I am in relationship with that I know about. Yes, Sandy. Yeah, a couple of things. I think first thing I'd like to say is I'm a terrible Methodist. I'm not a Methodist. <laughs> I, I mean, that's what makes Methodism beautiful is that you are Methodist. It's just, it's really, really big. <laughs> I, mean, I love the people in this church. You know, I love the church. And I love you as a, as a minister. I think the fact that we are here speaking today says the support. I mean, my head's spinning with all. I mean, I think it's maybe a little bit oversimplistic to say that the bolts in Africa are being brought. Because, you know, right. different cultures Absolutely. proceed to enlightenment in different spaces. Absolutely. And I go to Jamaica, which is a very homophobic society. doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I think Africa is the same. I think Philippines is the same. You know, I'm not going to impose my views on uh, morality on anybody else. Let them do what they want. I know African ministers who have said, who are included. Like, it, it, I mean, I, I, I just, I was trying to illustrate a part of the narrative, even though it, it can't all be true or all false at the same time. Right. So, I mean, the you know, bottom line is, I think we need to do, and I, I am, the thing that saddened me is that we've lost a lot of you talked about a clean role. How many of them have formally said we've left or they just kind of mm-hmm. in vote? I mean, one of the things that really saddened me a couple of years ago was when a person in this congregation I love said with great anger in his body, you can't redact the Bible. <laughs> but yet we all redact it. <laughs> you know, we do, we just choose different things. And to my mind, it's not what it's all about. I'd love to find a way that allows us going. I mean, Scott's one of the great animal. You know, there's the Holy Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there's <laughs> ministers get in the way, but they're kind of useful to interpret things. We don't need bishops, we don't need archbishops, we don't need monsignors. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I'm a terrible Methodist. I like to see things continue here in the way that I love. Thank you. You've had your hand up, but you don't right now. Do you? Didn't you? Or no? Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I, um, as, so it's this weird thing. So, uh, we talked about this a little bit in ad council, some differences between the different, um, orders of clergy in the Methodist church and uh, ordained clergy who would be deacons and elders serve at the pleasure of the bishop and uh, local licensed pastors, um, which would be Dave Christensen and Janine Hill and people that are not ordained, but do other things and are a different type of clergy um, serve at the pleasure of a district superintendent. So our bishops are already guilty for things well beyond me. Um, but I mean that that is the other that is the other challenge though is yes um, Elaine Stanowski has out gay clergy on her cabinet and knows that and actively puts them there so she is she is eligible for churches yes Jan did you want to clarify that well I was just going to say that the other conundrum in that is that that you I mean because of of the the way the system works, that, that when you are named, you um, itinerated, mm-hmm. and 
Actually, guaranteed full-time appointment, <laughs> and then we vote to recognize those that don't receive it. So, yeah. And, and so, you know, if you're clergy in good standing, I am. Then, then you are due an appointment. Yeah. So, so even though there's an apparent violation there, oh yeah, they also are required as long as she's in good standing. Yes, Jan. Then, well, when I was married in 19... Forever ago. 81 was a good year. A long time ago. Um, the minister that married me mm -hmm. in this church, 10 years, Lloyd McLaughlin, he was not actually um, ordained Methodist. Right. And I guess the reason, well... So we have relationships. No, so we have relationships. Uh, there's a there's a couple different things. So um, we have partnerships with the ELCA and another church that I can't think of, in which we can do cross appointments. Um, so we can borrow their clergy, and they can borrow us. Um, and then we also. Uh, have churches that we have full communion in which we can serve communion or they can serve communion to our bodies and fully be recognized. And then the world council of churches had us, uh, work. And so other than, um, the church of Latter-day Saints, which identifies as Christian, um, but is excluded from the statement, all Christian churches share baptism. Right. So if you were baptized in a Catholic church, it's recognized here. If you're baptized here, it's recognized by the Presbyterians. If you're baptized by the Presbyterians, it's recognized by the Mennonites. Um, so there's those kind of different levels. But no, we absolutely do. And then we also have, um, we have some Methodist churches, even in the Rocky Mountain Conference, that are dual denominations. So the, the church in Rifle is half Methodist, half Presbyterian. So they get a Methodist pastor, and then they get a Presbyterian pastor, and then they get a Methodist pastor, and then they get a Presbyterian pastor. Huh. So I mean, if somebody is mm -hmm. um, in February, mm -hmm. uh, you know, filed the charge mm -hmm. or whatever, what does that do to your ordination? Right. So, so I, I am ordained by the Methodist Church, and if I and that. That does not transfer over. So if I am ordained here and I am defrocked here, I am not ordained ministry. For any place. I mean, so... Right, no, I mean... Okay, so in my scenario, um, let's get personal. Um, if you think about it as a, a three-dimensional axis, so your x-axis is gender, um, and your y-axis is attraction, and then what is it, the z-axis is, is romance. Um, if you had asked me when I got ordained if I identify on the LGBTQ spectrum, I probably would have said no. Um, Although I wasn't against it, um, I probably would have said I don't identify that way. Um, then, on my z-axis, I entered into a romantic relationship, and it turns out my attraction is tied to my romance level, and I fell in love with somebody of the same gender. 
So nobody violated anything by ordaining me, even though I am a violation of the Book of Discipline. Um, the other thing, though, is when I was writing my paperwork, I made reference to my best friend, Susan, who moved here with me because financial choices, um, support choices, emotional support. And when I referenced her in my paperwork, the person that was reviewing my paperwork before I turned it in said, be very careful about the language you use so you do not paint and uh, you don't illustrate a narrative that could be, draw question to your sexuality, even though it was a platonic relationship. So at the same time, we also coach people. Now, at the same time, moving fast forwarding, our board of ordained ministry is actively ordaining and commissioning out LGBTQ people. We are, we are actively violating out of good conscience that aspect of the book of discipline. And I, there, there are board of ordained ministries across, across the country yeah. that have actually... Uh, Adopted statement that said they basically will not question about uh, matters right. of sexual They are going to only question them about matters of of call, the, right. theology. Yes, we've been don't ask, don't tell for a very long time. And and the problem is is actually um, is the Supreme Court legalizing marriage. Because, um, like, the person, the person that was charged in Wisconsin, like I said, I don't know how they defined self-avowed and practicing, but I, I know they didn't ask her intimate questions, and she wasn't married because it wasn't legal in Wisconsin at the time. Listen, so, And, I mean, those people who identify as, as heterosexual mm-hmm. are not asked are this question. Right. If you want to see, if you want to see a conservative uncomfortable, ask him where bisexuality plays out in this. <laughs> bisexuality. Singleness and practice fidelity yeah. in marriage. Celibate in singleness, and and there are all kinds of single clergy who will admit that they have not been celibate in singleness, but they are not being defrauded. And it's a, and it's exactly the same situation. It carries exactly the same weight. Nobody's bringing charges against people who are not celibate. And to be perfectly honest, that was the loophole that was being used against gay clergy before same-sex marriage was legal. It was people that were in committed relationships but could not legally be married were not practicing single celibacy and singleness. If they're not portraying the rules appropriately, not. Nope. Nope. Um, because the the... No. Um, and in fact, so, uh, so this past week, um, John MacArthur told Beth Moore to go home um, and supported it with his literal interpretation of scripture. 
And then uh, Adam Hamilton came out and said, well, this is really interesting. It's an interpretation of scripture and variances of that that are creating this problem. It sounds a lot like the Methodist church. And the WCA came out and said, no, 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 no. There are plenty of places in the scripture where it empowers women. He's wrong, but there is no, there is no support for same gendered ministers in scripture. And therefore we're right. So I, I would say, yes, like, you can, there is, um, it is against the book of discipline to not contact first UMC in Portland when you and LaToya relocate to Portland. I'm supposed to contact them and let them know that we should explore transferring your memberships. And if we don't, it is a violation of the book of discipline. Chargeable offense. <laughs> like the, I mean, there's a reason why the book of discipline is as large as a Bible. Um, it, it, has, it has, in my opinion, become the Methodist false idol, and, and it holds a very high regard, and yet um, we pick and choose. And, and this has definitely um, become one of those, those crux points. And, and I, think, I think the reality of the matter is, and, and, and I think you would agree, based on the time since Karen got elected and, and appointed here, it there just really is a point where we're not finding common ground. We're finding less common ground than common ground. Um, we're not going to have uniformity. And, and to be honest, I think unity might be a, a, a pipe dream as well at this point. And yet, wouldn't there be value in finding a way to be healthy in our disassociation? And again, the church split over, over slavery and segregation, and then the church found its way back together. Um, and so it is it is not unusual for the Methodist church to come to this point in which we just have to agree to disagree. Um, but if, if we don't, I think two things, if we don't formally split, split LGBT clergy will be systematically removed from the church. Um, and, and a lot of allies who will continue to perform same gendered weddings will then systematically be removed as well. So they're getting grandfathered in, but come January 1, you're not allowed to do same gender weddings. The first time you do it, you lose a year of pay. And the second time you do it, you're defrocked. So um, insert ally clergy of your choice. Emily Cannon conducts a ceremony on July, uh, January 3rd, and she's suspended for a year if she's brought up on charges and brought to trial. And the second time she does it, Emily's defrocked, no question about it. Um, so there is a split coming. It's just a question of what that split looks like and if we're removed individually or if large chunks or if there's a legitimate splitting of the half and half. Um, but, but it's coming and it's just a matter of who's going to still be here at the end. And I don't know that I answered this. The reason why at annual conference the conversation about uh, disaffiliation came up is because when you look at legal entities, so this is a question that's come up for a lot of churches with this issue is, do we own our building? Oh my gosh, we don't own the building. The conference owns the building. How would we come up with the money to buy our church if we want to stay? Because the conference owns the buildings and because of the way legal entities work, actually the annual conference would be the easiest to disaffiliate from the church. So the, the least costly, the most legal and the easiest path would be for the Mountain Sky Conference to say, thank you, no, thank you. We're not going to be the United Methodist Church anymore. And they would take all the churches and take all of us with them and could very easily at a very low, low cost remain a legal entity that just does not affiliate with the United Methodist Church anymore. So if, if you were to ask me what would actually be the path of least resistance, that would be it. So one of the, one of the issues, and this came up at annual conference, too, is that uh, 
general conference oversees 13 boards and agencies. 13 boards and agencies like that board of church or the general board of church and society. society. Um, and, and like core and other agencies like that. They oversee that and those agencies hold financial resources of great value. They, they own buildings, they, they own property. Which is why the WCA has not split and off, even though they have so the legal format too. There is, there is this tension over, you know, I mean, if, if our conference disaffiliated, you know, then we no longer have the use of the resources mm -hmm. of these agencies. And, and so there's this whole um, conundrum about, you know, when you're disaffiliating and you're breaking this part, who gets, who gets those resources? Who gets that huge pot of, of value? You know, where does it go? How does it get put up? Does, does WCA get it when they set up their new, their new denomination? Do, do we get some prorated portion of it if we... My wife would like that Methodist building on Capitol Hill, actually, <laughs> if you want to know where her priorities lie. <laughs> so that's one of the big points. Was there another question in the back? Um, I think my children's generation has a problem with the mm -hmm. I'm sorry, can you repeat that? I said I think my children's generation has such a problem with formal churches because of all of this dissension and hypocrisy. And just a little So, uh, at the pancake breakfast, um, I was shaking hands and kissing babies, and uh, <laughs> and I, I want to let you know that the people that came and asked about this community, and if they they said, you know, I've been I've seen your building, or I've seen your sign, or I know you're new, or I typically attend this church, but I've thought about attending. They asked one question, every single person, whether they had littles or they had college age kids or whatever. Every single person that I talked to asked, "Does your church include everyone?" Every single one of them. That was the question they wanted to know about this faith community was what is, what is their claim to inclusion? Your claim to inclusion. It's <laughs> open hearts, open doors, open minds. Gosh, who gets that in the divorce? <laughs> yes, Latoya. And, and, you know, I, so I think I, that question about our claim to inclusion is an important one. Because it's something that I think we need to Uh -huh. 
And so, um, you know, I, I think that we as a community, I'm thankful for this conversation. I, I do think that we as a community have to, we'll need to ask ourselves over the next few months, like, where we stand. So um, I know we're out of time, so I want to use that segue. Um, the Western Jurisdiction Fresh Methodism Conference, which is the informal gathering of the Western Jurisdiction in November, is November 14th, 15th, and 16th. My understanding is that they'll be live streaming it. Um, I'll be there as an observer, and my wife will be there as a participant. Um, Don, are you going? No. <laughs> Um, I don't have plans currently. <laughs> <laughs> I was invited. Um, it is, uh, I will provide the live stream information available to you if you want to participate. I know that's really important. Um, every email I did get from the bishop said, please tell your congregation to watch. So I don't know why you would watch any Methodist gathering like that, but I will get you that information. Um, the Pathways team, which is a fancy name for the committee exploring what disaffiliation looks like, is rolling out listening sessions. I don't know if they're listening to you or if you're supposed to listen to them. I'm not clear on that. Um, but they're rolling out listening sessions over November and December. Um, I'm guessing because of our physical size of our sanctuary, we're probably not going to be one of those spaces. Um, but that very well might pop up somewhere like Mountain View or something like that that has a larger space, and I will pass that information on to you. Um, I, I would say at some point, I would hope at some point, um, DeZenlo or Bishop Karen or a representative of the cabinet or the conference is going to call LaToya or Donna um, and say, where would you see your congregation going? Um, if there was a split similar to the one church plan concept, if, if your church had to choose one way or the other, which way would you see your congregation going? Um, and so people that both think and like you and think differently than you, um, there would be value in having those conversations and then funneling those conversations to LaToya and Donna. Um, I think they would probably be the two key points of contact for the conference. Um, and I think having more conversations like this um, will help reduce our anxiety as well. And I don't, there's always new information. And I know we're coming into probably the busiest season for both congregations and individuals. Um, so looking at November and December and January, um, if you could go home and take a temperature of this increasing your anxiety or decreasing your anxiety and when you would like to circle back, um, let me know and I will carve out that time again. Um, but I don't want to plan something that either A, feels like too many times, or, or B, is too much stretch in between. Because I want to make sure as we come into May and June, um, you feel like an informed congregation um, and that you have had time to kind of discern, excuse me, discern um, where you're sitting as an individual, where you're sitting as a family, where we're sitting as a congregation. Um, because I think if decisions do get made in a pace um, that suits my desires, um, they're going to be fast decisions and kind of doing some of the emotional and spiritual legwork ahead of time will be of high value. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, can we close in prayer? Would that be okay? Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the space to ask hard questions and to share hard truths and to open our imaginations to what is possible. 
may your spirit permeate each of us that we may be beacons of light and love. May we continue to learn from you and from each other. And may we hope for a future in which the teachings of Jesus, the power of the spirit and your unending love and grace is available to each and every person here and forevermore. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our recording about where the United Methodist Church has been and where we are today. If you would like to be a part of the conversation about where the United Methodist Church is going forward, especially as a part of the Louisville United Methodist Church community, please stay in touch. You can learn more about who this community is at louisvilleumc.org. From there, you can follow our news and announcements, hear sermons, and receive weekly emails from the pastor. We hope to schedule another meeting similarly in the month of December or January to continue to explore what it means to be the body of Christ in the 21st century. Thank you and have a great day.